Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer at HowStuffWorks, and I love all things tech. And today, we're going to tackle a fairly topical subject, uh, something that really came into play in the spring of 2018. And chances are, you have received an email or two, or two dozen or more from various companies about new policies that relate to GDPR. Often they will ask you for your permission to continue to communicate with you. So what's it all about, eh? Well, GDPR stands for General Data Protection Regulation, and it's a data protection law, as the name suggests, and it's from the European Union or EU. But the internet as it turns out, is a global entity. So even if you do not live in the EU, you will likely be affected by this new law. In this episode, I'm going to go through the history of the law, what the law is actually all about, and how companies are doing as far as complying with that law. And here's a hint. There are some companies that are not even close to compliance, but we'll get to that. First, let's look back to 1995. That's when the European Union adopted the Data Protection Directive, or DPD. It was a different world back in 1995. The World Wide Web was still a baby in 1995. Heck, I was still in college in 1995. The heart of the Data Protection Directive was an effort to protect the privacy of citizens in the EU. And the EU as a whole has placed a high value on privacy, something that has been treated with, uh, let's say, a more casual demeanor here in the United States, except in cases where something has gone terribly, terribly wrong. The directive specifically covered how data can be processed and in what context it might be processed within the European Union. It didn't matter if the data was collected manually or automatically, as in it didn't matter if there was a human in charge of it or if it was an algorithm. The rules were a broad overview, leaving up specifics to the member countries to actually adopt those those rules and incorporate them into their own laws. But some of the general tenets included that personal data could only be, quote, collected for specified, explicit, and legitimate purposes and not further processed in a way incompatible with those purposes, end quote. Further, only the data needed for those purposes should be collected. There should not be a case of an entity collecting practically everything if that entity's stated purpose is to run a process on just a narrow scope of all that data. This might remind you of the old days of Facebook apps where you could, uh, or add-ons, you know, those little things that you could attach to your Facebook profile, and they would ask you for permission to view certain parts of your information. Well, in the old Wild West days, that could be anything. It could be absolutely everything, even though the app itself may only use a tiny bit of the information at any given time, especially for whatever the app was supposed to do. Well, eventually, Facebook cracked down on that and said, you know what? Uh, You should only ask permission to get access to the data you need to do whatever it is that you do. And uh, otherwise, you should leave everything else alone. That's kind of what was going on back in 1995 with this this, uh, directive. Further, the data was meant to be as accurate as possible. And if there were any indications that the information was inaccurate or it was out of date, 
it would be, quote, erased or rectified, end quote. And finally, the data would have to be kept in such a way that the identity of the individuals involved would only be knowable for as long as it was necessary to run the process. Once the entity has done whatever it needed to do with all that information, it was supposed to anonymize the data so that there'd be no way of knowing who it pertained to. So once you had finished running whatever the process was, you had to make sure that the information would no longer be uh, traced back to the people who gave you that information. In addition, the directive required entities to obtain user consent before collecting their information in the first place, and that consent had to be unambiguous. In addition, the data collector was under the obligation of providing the individuals with information about who was ultimately getting the data and to what purpose, as well as provide for an opportunity for the individual to review the data for any potential errors. So that way, you as the person involved could say, well, let me take a look at what you've gathered and make sure that you don't have any information that is inaccurate or out of date. Now, already it might sound to you like this directive might have been a challenge to implement for a lot of reasons. In 2011, the European Data Protection Supervisor published an opinion titled, quote, a comprehensive approach on personal data protection in EU, end quote, as sort of an update to this policy. By 2011, the internet was much more mature than it had been back in 95, at least in the sense that there were a lot more people and businesses using it. There's still no shortage of immature content on the internet. Anyway, by 2011, e-commerce was a really big deal, and internet access was increasingly being viewed as a right. But that also brought with it threats to privacy. Many of the internet-connected services we enjoy are constantly collecting data on us, either about personal information about us in particular or tracking our behaviors over time. And that data is kind of like currency. It's got value to it. So you and I might enjoy a service while simultaneously supplying information to the service provider, which in turn could potentially sell that information off to other buyers. This applies for everything from apps to social media networks to smart devices. On January 25th, 2012, the European Commission proposed a reform of the data protection rules that came from 1995 in order to better represent the new digital landscape and protect citizens' privacy while simultaneously supporting the digital economy, which is a, a really tough job. you got to balance a lot of stuff that way. So it was, in fact, so difficult it would take four years just to draft the new rules. In 2014, the European Parliament voted on adopting a new set of rules, though those rules were not yet actually written. This was just the Parliament saying, yeah, I think it's time for us to actually have new rules regarding this. 621 votes were in favor of developing new rules. Only 10 votes were against it, and there were 22 abstentions. The various governing bodies of the EU reached an agreement on the GDPR rules on December 15, 2015. On April 27, 2016, the EU officially adopted the GDPR set of rules, but they would not be enacted for another two years. In other words, they said, hey, everybody, you have two years to get your act together. Here are the rules that you need to abide by. Go. You've got two years to get there. Uh, this decision also, by the way, repealed that previous 1995 directive. It said it's not in addition to that directive. This replaces it entirely. As of the spring of 2018, the GDPR's provisions became directly applicable in all member states of the EU. And late in the spring, the EU published a 
corrigendum to the regulation. That means the EU published a list of corrections and clarifications relating to the law. And in the interest of full disclosure, I have to admit I needed to look up the word corrigendum because I don't think I've ever seen it before. One of the biggest differences between the GDPR and the earlier Data Protection Directive is in its binding nature. The DPD, as I said, was a set of policies that had to be transposed into the national law of each of the members of the EU, which created a somewhat fragmented and messy set of policies. The GDPR, however, is different. It has direct legal effect on all EU member states with no need for the policies to be incorporated into those nations' laws. So, let's start talking about the specifics in the law. What does it cover, and in what ways might a person's data still be used without their knowledge or consent? Much of the regulation affirmed the earlier Data Protection Directive, but here are some of the key points. And first, I'm going to look at the opening statements of the GDPR. The EU has identified the protection of persons in relation of the processing of personal data as a fundamental right. And that right includes the right of protection of personal data. At the same time, there's a need to allow for the free flow of data between member states of the European Union. So any regulations in place must not create obstacles between different member states. Citizens of the EU are allowed to move freely through the EU, taking jobs in different member states, so their data should also be free to move through the EU with their consent. This next bit is pretty important, so I'm going to quote it directly. Quote, The processing of personal data should be designed to serve mankind. The right to the protection of personal data is not an absolute right. It must be considered in relation to its function in society and be balanced against other fundamental rights in accordance with the principle of proportionality. The regulation respects all fundamental rights and observes the freedoms and principles recognized in the Charter as enshrined in the treaties, in particular the respect for private and family life, home and communications, the protection of personal data, freedom of thought, conscience and religion, freedom of expression and information, freedom to conduct a business, the right to an effective remedy and to a fair trial, and cultural, religious, and linguistic diversity. So in other words, they were saying, yes, this is a fundamental right, but it does not take precedence over other fundamental rights. So there will come times when you have to take various things into consideration, and you can't just say the privacy is the most important element in this particular scenario. You have to consider all the different parts and weigh them against each other. But what do we mean when we say processing data? Well, essentially, it means any sort of operation on information, whether performed automatically or manually. That includes collecting data, recording data, structuring it in different ways, organizing it, altering it or adapting it, uh, consulting the data, using it in some way, transmitting the data, or even erasing the data. All of that is considered processing. So essentially, if you touch that data, you're processing it in some way. The document goes on to acknowledge that it is increasingly difficult and complicated to protect personal data in today's world. Globalization and the rapid exchange of information coupled with platforms that encourage people to share their personal data, either explicitly or otherwise, have made it pretty hard to regulate. GDPR also identifies two major categories of parties in addition to EU citizens. These are the data controllers and the data processors. 
The controllers are the entities that determine why and how data will be used. And the processors are the entities that actually carry out those operations on behalf of a collector. Uh, One single company can be both a collector and a processor, or they could partner with other companies. All right, those are the basics. When we come back, I'll get into more specifics with the GDPR. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. One tricky thing in the policy is that it covers all entities that process data that belongs to EU citizens, even if those entities themselves are not in the EU. So, for example, let's say I have set up a new social networking platform, and I'm calling it Strickbook. So I've got Strickbook, and I've built a data center in my garage here in the United States. But there are people in the European Union that have made accounts on my platform. And let's say that I make money by dealing in data to parties that want that information. So I gather information from my users and I sell it to various entities that want access to it. Maybe they want to market to my users directly, send advertising to them. Well, I would be the subject to the regulations of GDPR because... There would be EU citizens using my service, even though my service is located in the United States. So as long as those EU citizens were using my services while they were in the EU, I would have to play by this policy's rules. From the EUGDPR.org site, quote, The GDPR will also apply to the processing of personal data of data subjects in the EU by a controller or processor not established in the EU, where the activities relate to offering goods or services to EU citizens, irrespective of whether payment is required, and the monitoring of behavior that takes place within the EU. Non-EU businesses processing the data of EU citizens will also have to appoint a representative in the EU. So essentially what that's saying is, if you want to use the, the data that our citizens create, whether it's to market to them or you're tracking their information for some other purposes, you got to play by our rules. Doesn't matter that you don't have your operations here in the European Union. The introduction also explains that the policy does not protect in all cases. For example, it says, This regulation does not apply to issues of protection of fundamental rights and freedoms or the free flow of personal data related to activities which fall outside the scope of union law, such as activities concerning national security. This regulation does not apply to the processing of personal data by the member states when carrying out activities in relation to the common foreign and security policy of the union. Likewise, in the case of law enforcement conducting an investigation, the policy does not protect personal data. The policy does, however, point toward other regulations in the EU that govern how law enforcement can access personal information, because it's not just willy-nilly, they have to go through the proper procedures. However, they say, there are obviously cases where persons' private data may become an important element in some state-level or law enforcement-level process. And in those cases, this does not protect him. You can't, as a citizen, say, no, police, you can't look at my personal data as part of this investigation, even though you lawfully obtained it by going through all the right processes. That would not be allowable under GDPR. Another limitation of the GDPR is that it applies only to information for a person who is identified or is identifiable by that information, which includes 
pseudonymization, what means the data is quasi-anonymous, that if you were presented with the information, you might not be able to immediately identify who that information pertained to, but that with additional information, you would be able to identify the person. So this is pretty important stuff, it turns out, because not that much information is actually needed to identify a person. For example, here in the United States, there was a Harvard professor uh, named Latanya Sweeney who conducted a study a few years ago, and she discovered that all she needed was a zip code, a gender, and a birth date to identify up to 87% of all people in the United States. That's it. Three data points. Those three pieces of data was all it would be needed in order for you to say that those pieces of information specifically refer to this person. And it worked 87% of the time for all U.S. adults. It doesn't take much to single someone out. That is why the pseudonymization term is used. It's pseudo-anonymous. The policy goes a little bit further with this, stating that if it were to take an unreasonable amount of effort or money to ascertain the identity of a person based on this limited information, it's probably okay because it's unlikely anyone would actually go to those lengths. But the easier it is to identify a person based on the data, the more it falls under the protection of GDPR. But then what about anonymous data? What about data that really seems to have no connection with any particular individual? The GDPR does not protect truly anonymous data. If there is no way to identify a single person out of a collection of anonymized data for statistical or research purposes, that's fine. So if you were doing an academic study that took demographics into account and the population size you were looking at were sufficiently large enough to ensure no respondent could be identified from the information, you'd be all set. Now, if you're working with a really small population size, anyone who is an outlier would be easily identifiable, and that would therefore fall under GDPR because it's not truly anonymous data. But if you're working with really big data sets, then outliers, you'll have enough of them to kind of make sure that anonymity is preserved. So again, it's all a spectrum. The GDPR also does not apply if you happen to be dead. But then at that point, you're probably past caring about your personal data. Also, it's Hard to have personal data if you, you know, if you're no longer a person. The GDPR also says that any party that intends to collect and process data must be transparent in its policies. So those policies have to be easy to find and they have to be written in such a way as to be easily understood. You aren't supposed to obfuscate your intentions with unnecessarily complicated jargon or legalese. This includes not just how data is collected, but to what purpose that data will be put. So if a company wants to collect information in order to sell it to other parties, it would have to disclose that in this policy and do so in a way that was pretty transparent, easy to understand. And the GDPR does not mess around when it comes to the concept of a user consenting to have his or her data collected or processed. I quote, Consent should be given by a clear affirmative act establishing a freely given, specific, informed, and unambiguous indication of the data subject's agreement to the processing of personal data relating to him or her, such as by a written statement, including by electronic means, or an oral statement. This could include ticking a box when visiting an internet website, choosing technical settings for information society services, or another statement or conduct which clearly indicates, in this context, the data subject's acceptance of the proposed processing of his or her personal data. 
silence, pre-ticked boxes, or inactivity should not, therefore, constitute consent. Consent should cover all processing activities carried out for the same purpose or purposes. When the processing has multiple purposes, consent should be given for all of them. If the data subject's consent is to be given following a request by electronic means, the request must be clear, concise, and not unnecessarily disruptive to the use of the service for which it is provided. So yeah, it's a big deal. And companies are supposed to be real clear about this whenever they present a user with the option to opt into this kind of data collection and processing. Moreover, consent should be just as easy to withdraw as it is to grant. So if a user decides after giving consent to revoke that consent, it has to be possible to do so, and the entity collecting or processing the data has to knock it off. Citizens are also allowed to ask for all their data from a controller, and then those citizens can even send that data to another controller. So in other words, potentially, the GDPR could allow citizens to act as their own data brokers. Granted, personal data on an individual level is not worth all that much. It's mostly valued when it's in bulk, when you have thousands of people's data. Selling one person's data, not that big a deal. Unless you're talking about things like you know, credit card numbers and stuff like that. Even then, it, it's not that expensive. So you might wonder, how much is all your data worth? Well, that depends on the nature of the information and how much of it you're providing and who you are, really. But uh, there's a great post on Medium titled, quote, How Much Is Your Data Worth? And that uses some basic industry analysis to conclude that, on average, a person's data is worth about $240 per year. But this calculation was done with a lot of assumptions, and that is something the author of the piece readily admits to. It's a tricky question, but still, it could now be a question answered by individual citizens rather than data brokers. Related to this is the concept of data erasure, or better known as the right to be forgotten. A lot was written about this a couple of years ago when the EU first uh, agreed to these rules. And I'll probably chat a little bit more about that later, but it is pretty tricky. Generally speaking, this policy says the data subject has the right to tell a data collection entity to cut it out, to delete all the collected data about that person, and potentially have third parties that partnered with that data collection entity to stop any data processing of that information. However, this has to be done with a consideration toward, quote, the public interest in the availability of the data, end quote. So in other words, let's say you go and do something really, really dumb, like colossally stupid, and news outlets pick it up and they cover your colossally stupid mistake. And now your name is associated with this terrible mistake you made. And, you know, you made it, honestly, you didn't set out to make it, it just happened, but now it's attached to your name. Well, you wouldn't be able to just sweep that under the rug by asking all search engines to delete information about you thus reducing the chance anyone would ever see that information about your dumb mistake because it goes against the public interest of the availability of that data. This is one of the points that I was talking about just a second ago that a lot of news outlets were really focusing on because imagine you are, let's say, uh, a political hopeful and you decide you want to wipe out any references to your past that are online as best you can. And so you contact all of these different search engines to have all that information be quote-unquote forgotten because you don't want people to dig up something you did 
you know, 15 years ago that would look really, really bad while you're running for office. That would be considered uh, against this policy at this point. But there was a lot of discussion back when these rules were first being proposed that said this might end up causing some huge problems down the road. And it turns out it needs to be a case-by-case basis. It's not like something that is clearly spelled out within the charter of GDPR. Well, we're going to take another quick break, but when we come back, I'll tell you a little bit more about this and how companies are doing as they try to measure up to GDPR. But first, a quick word from our sponsor. So another change from the earlier data protection directive is that the GDPR requires all system designers to incorporate privacy as part of the design from the start of their system. Like as soon as they start designing any kind of online system, data privacy protection has to be part of that design. Previously, it had been treated more as an addition to previously existing systems, but now system designers have to, by law, incorporate privacy design into the actual development of their systems if they are to operate within the European Union. If a data collection or processing company detects a data breach, it is obligated under GDPR to notify affected parties within 72 hours of detecting the breach. So three days afterwards, they have to disclose this. That means that gone are the days when a company would sit on that information for maybe months or longer at a time. A data processor has to alert data collectors, quote, without undue delay, end quote, upon detecting a breach. So let's say that Facebook is the data collector. And let's say there's an app out there or an an add-on, some form of uh, enhancer for Facebook that is operating. And then the enhancer detects that their systems have been breached they would be obligated to alert Facebook to that problem without undue delay uh, in order for Facebook to take any measures it could uh, under the GDPR. And then it would also have to alert all the people affected by this within three days. The GDPR also sets up the basis for a mandatory data protection officer for organizations that have core activities that, quote, consist of processing operations which require regular and systematic monitoring of data subjects on a large scale or of special categories of data or data relating to criminal convictions and offenses, end quote. Other organizations can have a data protection officer, but it's not mandatory if they are outside of that definition. However, all the really big companies out there kind of fall into this. So I expect we're going to have data protection officer as a new type of uh, employee at most of those large companies, either employed directly by the company or they will be offering their services as a data protection officer and it'll be a contract issue with, you know, some sort of provider that specializes in this. Because the person who is the data protection officer is supposed to have a specialty in that field. It's not just supposed to be, hey, Bob, you want to be data protection officer this week? It's not supposed to be like that. In addition, this data protection officer becomes a liaison with data protection authorities or DPAs. The data protection authorities are kind of like the overseers of this system. They're the ones who are making certain that everyone is is complying with the rules. If anyone's not complying with the rules, they can take action. Uh, 
And they have a lot of power. So, for example, they can impose corrective actions, such as a temporary or definitive limitation on data processing activities, including a complete ban on data processing or to order the suspension of data flows to a recipient in a third country. So, in other words, they could say, hey, Facebook, you are not allowed to process any data from any citizen in the European Union ever again because you broke this rule. They technically have the power to do that. Uh, In addition, if a controller is found to be in breach of GDPR, it can be hit with a fine of up to 4% of its annual global turnover, or 20 million euro, whichever is greater. Well, global turnover is a European phrase. It's a way of saying total revenues. That's what we would call it in the United States. So if you want to look at global total revenues, that can be a a truly mind-numbingly huge sum of money, depending on the company. Let's go with a big one. Let's think about Apple. So Apple made 229.2 billion US dollars in revenue in 2017. If we convert that to euro, that's 195,893,802,000 euro. So let's take 4% of that. That would be a fine. Let's say Apple has committed this this breach of GDPR, this this worst case scenario, and the data uh, protection authorities levy this 4% fine. That 4% fine would amount to 7,835,752,080 euro. Almost 8 billion euro in a, in one fine. That's it's, it's crazy. And that's why a lot of companies have really been taking a lot of effort to try and at least appear to comply with GDPR because the consequences are truly scary. And that's if, obviously, if your company is operating at a level where more than 4% of your, your uh, or 4% rather, of your total revenue is greater than 20 million euro. If it's less, then you still have to pay 20 million euro. Now, the penalties are tiered, so it's not like it's that fine for any infraction. The example I just cited was for the absolute worst case scenario. But if it were for a smaller infraction, let's say that it's a, like you didn't conduct a proper impact assessment for something like a potential data breach and the DPAs found that out, they said, oh, well, you didn't take the necessary steps according to the GDPR, you could be hit by a smaller fine. But by smaller fine, it could still be 2% of your total revenues. I mean, half of 7 billion euros is still a huge amount of money, right? Anyway, the full GDPR document is available online and in many different languages. The English language version is 88 pages long, so there's a lot more in there that I kind of skimmed over for the purposes of this episode. I wanted to take a bit of time, however, to talk about the effect this has had on the world already. I'm recording this at the beginning of July 2018, and already we're starting to see the effects of GDPR. And first, you probably received some of those emails or messages from different organizations about their efforts to comply with GDPR. A lot of companies have been working toward compliance ever since the policy was approved in 2016. That's exactly what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to get their acts in gear within those two years. But according to analyst firm Gartner, more than half of all companies affected by GDPR will not be in full compliance with its regulations even by the end of 2018. On a related note, there's a consumer advocacy group called the European Consumer Organization. Its initialism is B-E-U-C because it comes from the French name for the group, which I am not going to attempt to pronounce because... 
I love you, French speakers, and I don't want to hurt you with my terrible pronunciation. But anyway, the BEUC conducted a study of big tech companies and how they hold up to GDPR policies. And they analyzed a bunch of privacy policies by 14 major companies, including Facebook, Apple, and Google. And they said that most of them had privacy policies that might not meet the GDPR standard at all. They said a lot of them included vague and insufficient language. One big reason for that comes down to the era of big data. So big data, or big data if you prefer, refers to enormous data sets that can include all sorts of information, including stuff that upon first glance might be useless or completely unrelated to whatever you want to analyze. But data analysts have found that you can discover really interesting patterns and associations and trends if you have really large sets of data. Sometimes you can find new ways to make use of that data that are really transformative, but you might not have that idea before you actually get hold of all the information, and therein lies a huge problem. GDPR requires companies to spell out in clear terms why they want a person's information. They're only supposed to collect the data relevant to whatever process they wish to perform, and they have to get the user's consent to do it. So I have a feeling that if you were to ask a data collection company, why do you need all this information about me and my behavior? You might get a response of, I don't know, and that won't cut it. There are companies right now that have so much information about us that they don't even know what they have. It's kind of like going to an auction and buying a locked storage unit, and you don't get to look inside it. You have to buy it sight unseen. You have no idea what you're going to get once you open that storage unit's doors. It might be a gold mine of antiques, or it could just be a bunch of worthless junk, or it might even be empty. Well, some companies have enormous repositories of information that effectively amounts to the same thing. They don't know what they have yet. Having these companies comply with GDPR requires them to sift through all the information and determine which bits are identifiable as defined by GDPR and then be able to produce it or destroy it upon request, which is a pretty tall order. All right, so what does this mean to the average person? Well, if you live in the EU, you now have some pretty darn powerful legislation looking after your data protection. And if you so choose, you can exert your rights to request data or even have it deleted, assuming doing so does not go against the public interest in general, and you should be able to expect that to be delivered upon. Although I've listened to some podcasts, uh, my buddy Nate Langson did one for Bloomberg, where he talked about how difficult it was to get his information from certain organizations, uh, even going through the GDPR process. So companies aren't really necessarily prepared to do this, but they are supposed to comply with it. But if you're outside the EU, like me, you're probably just getting a ton of emails about this. And for the most part, you can ignore them. Some of them are likely asking you if you consent to being included on mailing lists as kind of a, a protective measure. Uh, there are people who aren't certain if this is absolutely necessary yet, but a lot of companies are like, we'd better, we'd rather, we'd rather send an unnecessary email out now and cover our bases, then find out later on that we should have done that. So if you want to keep getting email from those companies, you might need to skim the message. You, there might be a link you have to click in to indicate you've opted in to receive that mail. But if you're like me, you're probably just deleting the emails and then relishing in the thought that you're not going to have to deal with as much spam on a regular basis. Now, I noticed on ZDNet that there is a theory going around about clout 
That's the company that assigned people a social media score based off the reach and impact of their various social media accounts like Twitter and Facebook. Clout closed up shop right around the time the GDPR compliance was to go into effect, which was May 25th, 2018. And the theory is that it's possible Clout went and closed up partly because it was so hard to comply with GDPR. I mean, they're an organization that's dependent upon many other entities that are collecting and processing data. So the owners of Clout may have opted just to walk away rather than try and work that out. But again, that's just a theory. It may have nothing to do with the GDPR, but it is interesting, the timing. And also there are some sites like news organizations such as the LA Times or the Baltimore Sun that have restricted the access to their sites within the European Union. So if you're in the EU and you try to visit one of those sites, you might get a message stating that due to GDPR, the users would be unable to access the site at that time. Now, that's not necessarily permanent. These sites are more more likely just trying to find ways that they can comply with GDPR that might even require them to set up a different web portal for their various articles and services that operates on a different set of rules than the ones in the rest of the world do, which creates sort of a fragmented experience, but it might be the only way they're able to comply with GDPR without overhauling their entire system. But uh, the penalties for failing to comply are so high, some companies would rather step back in the short term and lose all that traffic from the EU while they're trying to work on a more compliant uh, implementation rather than risk an enormous fine. And that brings us up to speed on what GDPR is and why it's causing so much ruckus in the tech sphere right now. I'm sure we'll have plenty of stories relating to GDPR unfold over the next few years, and I'm, I'm certain that in the future I'll cover some of them. But I wanted to do this episode just in case some people out there were, like me, wondering what this was all about, and you don't have time to read all 88 pages of that legislation. It's a real page turner. It's actually not that bad to read, um, but it is a lot. So hopefully this was helpful. If you have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, whether it is a technology, a person, a company, maybe there's a particular story in tech that you think really deserves deep treatment, send me a message. Ask me to cover it. I would love to hear from you. The email address for the show is techstuff at HowStuffWorks.com or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle at both of those is TechStuffHSW. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 